So with the recent referendum on political independence in Scotland, and let's not overlook the first Scottish doctor on the hit television series Doctor Who, this episode of Footnoting History will focus on a murder and what it can tell us about Scotland and state building. Scotland, the final frontier. These are the voyages of... Okay, I get it, I know. Scotland is not the final frontier. But in the 14th century, it was definitely one of the frontiers of Western Europe. For example, Edinburgh is as far north as some of the southern portions of Alaska. That's right, Alaska. And yet, despite this remoteness, medieval Scotland was a melting pot of various cultures. Before we even get to the 14th century, the Celts, the Britons, the Angles and Danes had all left their marks on what would become Scotland. The mixing of all these different cultures, in some ways, seems more fitting of the Indonesian rather than the Anglo-Celtic archipelago. But the Indonesian archipelago is significant here. Like that southeastern collection of islands, the Anglo-Celtic Isles were similarly surrounded by kingdoms that were seemingly more powerful politically and economically. Anyways, Scotland has proven to be one of the more remarkable nations in European history, and it should certainly be considered a distinct nation, separate from England and Ireland, with its own shared history and culture. So let's start with the facts. In February 1306, the two most powerful men in Scotland, John Common and Robert, Earl of Carrick, met in a church to discuss who would be King of Scotland. Both men had ties to the Anglo-Norman and Scottish communities. John Common, in fact, claimed a familiar relationship with the royal houses of both Scotland and England. Robert Carrick had lands and title in England and Scotland, and his second wife was the daughter of the most powerful English lord in Ireland. Their quest for the crown was based not on national affection, but instead on personal and factional competition. Kingship in medieval Europe was complicated and based on a number of factors, the deciding factor often being who had access to the largest army. Uh, for those of you who are freaking out right now, saying, no, the economic powerful economies all went into feeding a large, powerful army. In 1306, this person was Edward I, King of England. In 1299, the recognized King of Scotland, John Balliol, abdicated after his imprisonment in the Tower of London by Edward I. Now, Edward imprisoned him because even though Edward didn't claim to be the King of Scotland, he did claim to be its overlord. So while he did not wear the Scottish crown, he appointed officials and demanded that the powerful lords make oaths of loyalty, such as the King of Scotland. So in one corner we have the King of England, whose father was Anglo-Norman and mother was from Provence, modern France, and whose queens, he had two wives, were from Castile, modern Spain, and France. John Comyn, the guy who didn't come out of the church alive, had close ties with John Balliol and was widely viewed as a potential heir to the crown. Under Balliol, Comyn had worked to limit the authority of Robert Bruce and his supporters, forcing Robert to seek an alliance with Edward I. When Edward began taking a more active role in his lordship of Scotland in 1299, Robert believed that he was on the ascendancy. His fortunes were improving. He believed that Edward would make him guardian of Scotland, a position that would have made him all but king in name. But Edward, a shrewd politician, knew that favoring one family over another would inevitably lead to conflict and began limiting the authority and positions of Robert and his supporters. He believed that Coleman and Robert would act as mutual checks, each limiting the authority of the other. For Robert and his supporters, this was unacceptable. They had backed Edward and believed that they were due a reward for their, albeit mercenary, loyalty. Coleman had resisted Edward, and was seemingly being rewarded for it. This was an essential part of medieval politics, namely, strength mattered more than loyalty. 
Coleman's military strength marked him as a better ally in Scotland than Robert of Carrick. Both Coleman and Robert were concerned with protecting their networks of patronage, not with who was the best king of Scotland. So in the winter of 1306, Robert and John Coleman met to discuss the future of Scotland as a kingdom. Neither man liked the English overlordship, not because they valued an independent Scotland, but because they disliked the limits being placed on their networks of authority and patronage. The historical sources on the meeting are extremely contradictory, reflecting the nationalist values of their authors. What we know, or at least what we think we know, is that there was a deal on the table. One man would become king, the other would become the largest landholder in Scotland. Scottish sources argue that Robert was trade by Coman to Edward I, that Coman had no intention of lining with Robert against the English. This seems unlikely, since the crown was moving to limit Coman's authority as much as it was Robert's. The Scottish sources present Robert as killing a traitor to the Scottish cause. John was a collaborator, not a Scottish nobleman or nationalist. Without any Scottish rival, Robert the Bruce was able to rally the Scottish nobles to his cause, creating a united Scotland and using this authority to wipe out both the English and Coman resistance. But so what? I mean, this is seemingly complex medieval high politics that ends with a more or less independent Scotland and a dead John Common. And how does this relate to the question of Scottish independence or the Scottish Doctor Who, which is probably what most of you are wondering right now? I don't want people to interpret this as an argument against the existence of a Scottish identity. Of course, Scotland has a distinct national culture and history. But it's worth noting that this isle is tied to England and Ireland and Europe at large. As historian of the Anglo-Celtic Isles, Dr. Christopher McGinn recently remarked, British identity waxes and wanes within Scotland. Now, if you hear footsteps... It's my colleagues here at Footnoting History coming to get me because we've stumbled headlong into current events, in events that are in no way, shape, or form a footnote. But the murder and subsequent history of the murder should remind us that historical memory and political identity are, if not entirely, then certainly susceptible to cultural constructs. As Scotland voted on independence and England wrestles with its relationship with the European Union, European voters are increasingly being thrust into the position of Robert the Bruce, unwittingly and unintentionally creating new states as they struggle to maintain their place in the international community. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.